Okay. Well, if you have your Bible or you're cruising along in your worship guide, we are in Psalm 15 today. Let me give you just a quick update on where we are in our sermon plan. Um, we have Psalm 15 this week. Let me look at my calendar to make sure I don't get this wrong. Next week, we'll do Psalm 16. And then we will have in November, the first three Sundays in November, we will have uh, Reverend Pat Roach come back and join us to continue his teaching on the Apostles' Creed. Um, we realized, Becca and I, uh, along with the session, that I had two weeks left of vacation time that I had not taken this year. Uh, so we're going to take that time, and Pat's going to come and fill in. And then I'll be back that third Sunday, but Pat's still going to preach, so uh, I don't have to work when we're supposed to be taking time off. Uh, but I'm excited about this. Uh, I love Pat's teaching. I'm excited that he's going to be here. So Pat will be here for three weeks. And then after that, starting on November 27th, that's the first Sunday of the season of Advent. So we're going to take five weeks, starting on November 27th, take us all the way through Christmas, and we are going to go through the first two chapters of the book of Luke, going through uh, what we what has come to be known as the Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus. We're going to go through that verse by verse over five weeks. So then after that, we'll go back to the Psalms for a couple of weeks and then something else. So that's where we are. Um, Psalm 15, though, is where we are today. I want to encourage you to turn there. Um, and if you are able, stand for the reading of God's word. Can I stand without messing up our whole system? <laughs> Tell you what, I'll, I'm going to sort of stand. <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray. I mean, let's read. And then we'll pray. Psalm 15, Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that in this time, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is another Psalm of David. I think thus far, I think we've only had Psalms of David, and we've given lots of introduction about that, so I'll... I'll um, 
We won't spend too much time there. But I will point out this psalm is that doesn't have a little note saying it's uh, for congregational singing. And that that does matter some in the way that we read it. It is a good reminder for us that all 150 psalms are good for congregational singing. Uh, but this one in particular doesn't have that special note that says it was specifically designed for that purpose. And that helps us to see that when, when we read it, um, we, we, David is writing this as, as a, as a meditation, as a prayer, as a devotional. Uh, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's writing scripture and it is for our worship. Uh, but we're going to read it a little bit differently than the ones that we see have the note for congregational singing. Uh, so that, that is worth noting here. But the, the biggest thing about this psalm that we need to pay attention to is the format. This psalm uh, has a format of a question and an answer. It's, in that sense, uh, liturgical. In fact, this psalm is written in a particular style that is also used in Psalm 24. It appears again in Isaiah 33. It's a particular format that they would call, uh, one commentator called an entrance liturgy. It's liturgical in that there's a question and an answer, and it could be used for worship in the fact that the worship leader would ask the question and the, and the people would give the answer like we do in our call to worship. But it it's almost a little play. It's like a little drama. There's a question and an answer, and it's called an entrance liturgy because the question has to do with who can go into the temple or the, the tent, the tabernacle, um, God's dwelling place. And then the, the answer is, says who can go in. Let me back up and we'll just, I'll read the first verse and you'll see it. So the question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? There's the question. And then we get an answer that takes place in five verses and we get a list. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart, tongue utters no slander, and it goes on and on and on and on. So do you see the back and forth here? There's a liturgical style. One person asks, who can enter? Who can enter the temple? Who can enter the tent? God's dwelling place. And then comes the answer. I read one commentator that uh, was actually it was Derek Kidner, who's a famous commentator on the Psalms and Proverbs, and he sort of expounded on this. And he said, he, speaking to the reader, he says, "Imagine a pilgrim or a worshiper walking up to the gate of a temple and asking the door, the you know the the person at the door, the the, the doorman, the concierge, or even the priest who keeps the door." What's the, what's the price of admission? What's the requirement to go in? And then the doorkeeper gives an answer. That's something of what we have here. As I thought about this idea, I thought about, oh, hi. <laughs> so I thought about this idea, I thought about, uh, Chip. Um, Chip works as a concierge at a, at a nice building where people live. And I'm sure that, uh, 
there's times where Chip or his coworkers are sitting at the desk and somebody comes in who maybe they don't recognize and the person maybe says something like, uh, what, what would it take to get a, to get a place here, you know, to rent here or to, to buy a house here? I don't know if that's ever happened, but if it ever did, I'm sure Chip would have an answer. Well, here's, here's what you would need to do. That's sort of what this psalm is about. It's acting out this scenario. So that's the framework of the psalm. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to dig into it. I want to, let's look at the, some of the particulars of the question. There's a couple things there I want to point out, and then we'll look at the particulars of the answer. There's some things there I want to point out, and then we'll put it all together and see what it means for us today. So first, the question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent and who may live, who may live in your holy mountain? So who may dwell in your sacred tent? Some translations might say sojourn in your sacred tent. The sacred tent, that's the tabernacle. If you remember the story of the Exodus, uh, after the people came out of Egypt, after Sinai, God gave them instructions to build a mobile tent temple. And that is where God's presence came and, and lived among the people. And then God traveled with the people through the wilderness for 40 years, went into the land. They set up the tent in a place called Shiloh. And that was like the first, excuse me, that was the first temple. So now the question is, who may dwell in God's sacred tent? And then the question is asked again in another way. Who may live on your holy mountain? The holy mountain, that's Mount Zion. And we we talked about this a little bit last week in Psalm 14. Mount Zion is the is the the, the mount in Jerusalem where they eventually built the Solomon's temple. Uh, and, and then again the second temple. And you can go there even today. That's where the Wailing Wall, the, 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 the remnant piece of, of, the, of that second temple is that's still there. Who may dwell on your holy mountain? So the, the question here is who is getting in to God's temple? That's the question. But this is not just going in on the Sabbath to offer sacrifice and worship. This is a going in for uh, permanent dwelling, who may dwell, who may sojourn. I like how the ESV says sojourn. Sojourning is that idea of uh, staying for quite a long time. Um, just as God in the, with the tabernacle sojourned with the people as they traveled through the wilderness, the psalmist is asking, how do I now sojourn with God? By going into his tabernacle and staying there. Then the psalmist is asking, how can I go into the temple? And not just for the day, not just for, not just for church, you know, not just for sacrifices. How do I live there? How do I take up residence? So here in the question, it's, there's this temple liturgy thing. This acting out, you know, going and asking the priest at the door or the concierge, you know, what's the, what's the price of admission? But in the language is this, um, 
is infuse this picture of the pilgrim not just wanting to go in for a short time. The pilgrim is really asking, how do I go in with my whole life? So if I were to phrase the question in my own words, I think I would say that what the psalmist is asking is not just how uh, to have a worship experience where he or she is close to God, but how can I have my whole life be filled with worship experience? How can I be close to God? How can I live with God close to me? How can, how can I be filled with God? What would it be like to have my whole life permeated with the presence of God? This idea of being filled with God is a thoroughly biblical idea. In the Old Testament, we see that at various times and places, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time so that they would be able to do certain things. Like when the Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he was strong and he was able to defeat the Philistines and save the people. At that moment, Samson would have been filled with God. But as we get closer to the New Testament, we see this, we see allusions to the idea that a time is coming when um, the presence of God is not just going to be in the temple. It's not just going to be for a moment on individuals. It's going to be everywhere. The prophet Joel talks about how the, God is going to come in such a way where old men and young men and women and children and everybody is going to prophesy like the prophets of old. God is going to pour out his spirit. Jesus talks about this. Jesus talks about rivers of living water are going to be poured out. The Apostle John, when he tells that story, reminds us that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we see in the book of Acts that God pours his spirit out and people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that the people of God all together become A new temple. Apostle Paul even says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what it means to be close to God is not just something that we do on a feast day or on a Sabbath day. It's something that permeates our whole life. So when the psalmist says, how can I dwell in the sacred tent? How can I live in the holy mountain? We as Christians read this and we should understand his question. He's asking, what is it going to take for me to have a life that is permeated with God's presence? The kind of Christianity that I read about in the book of Acts, the kinds of things that I read about in God's promises in the Bible, this, this, this hopeful uh, life that I hear in good sermons, that, that I see in looking at the example of mature Christians, people who are filled with joy even in hard times. How do I live this God-filled life? So that's the question. Now, at this point, I would hope that each and every one of us would maybe recognize that we ourselves uh, have asked that question before or maybe asking that question right now. I think the question, how can I live, how can, how can I have a God-filled life, is really um, 
phrased one way or another, the most important question anyone can ask. I think it's a good question for non-Christians and non-believers to ask, to maybe consider if there is a God, whoever this God is, how can I uh, tap into that reality? How can I get close? That's really important. But I think it's also a question for us Christians, even those of us who have uh, who have Jesus in our life, who've received the Holy Spirit, we need to ask, how do I live into this reality? How do I live a God-filled life? It's something we should ask for our church. What would it mean to our, for our church to be filled with God in the midst of our city? So that's the question. And I hope you, you realize, you see now that it's really important. So that's the question. Now here's the answer. Uh, and for those of us who grew up in, in church, um, especially those of us who grew up in, you know, reformed evangelical-ish type churches, this answer, uh, it, it might be a little uncomfortable for some of us uh, because, well, let's just get into it. Here's the answer. I'll read it uh, piece by piece. Well, I'll read the whole thing and then I'll kind of summarize it in, in some different words. Here's the answer. The person who gets to live a God-filled life is this person. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to their neighbor, casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, who does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. That's the person that gets to live a God-filled life. That's the person who, uh, you do these things, you will never be shaken. Now, that's kind of a long list, uh, but Hebrew poetry, by nature, uh, very often will say the same thing, you know, in, in paired lines. Two or three lines will say the same thing, and we see some of that here. So let me just summarize. I think we can condense this list down to really four uh, attributes, four characteristics of the person who gets, who qualifies for a God-filled life. So if we're going to condense the Hebrew poetry down into, uh, you know, Western uh, bullet points, right, here they are, four things. The, the person who get, who qualifies for a God-filled life, number one, is the person who has purity of heart. We see that in verse 2. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, and who speaks the truth from the heart. The person who has purity of heart. Blameless. Uh, I learned something that the Hebrew term that's translated blameless, it's tamira. And it it means, uh, it it means uh, a perfect wholeness or soundness it means that it's 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 good it's sound it's structurally has structural integrity through and through their walk the way that they live their life is uh, well-rounded structurally whole we can't point to any weaknesses any places of guilt no no, nothing blacked out, hidden on their permanent record. They do what is righteous. 
Their actions are good. Their actions look like God's actions. And they speak the truth from their heart. Two pieces from this. Speaking the truth and then speaking the truth from their heart. Now Jesus says out of the heart, uh, the mouth speaks. Uh, well, what this is saying is there's no filter for this person. There's no filter in between the heart and the mouth. Straight through. And then what comes out, unfiltered, is good. And it's true. Now, I don't know about you, but when I take my filter off, what comes out is usually not all good and usually not all true. But this person, because their heart is pure, what comes out is pure. This person has purity of heart. Now, I think when we, I know that myself, when I meet people, or I know people in my life that this description sounds like them, these people very often make me uncomfortable because I think that they're hiding something. Or I think that it's an act. I know sometimes in the business world, uh, when, when we see people who we could describe this way, they're labeled as a Boy Scout or a goody two-shoes. They can't be trusted. They're naive. They're hiding something. But here in this verse, this person with purity of heart, this is the person that gets to be filled with God. So that's the first thing. The second thing, this person has wholesomeness in speech. We see this kind of hinted at the last one. Their heart is pure and that purity comes out and shows in their speech. There's no filter. Well, the psalmist kind of runs with that. Look at verse 3. Whose tongue utters no slander. Slander is when you say something that's not true about somebody else. When you deface somebody's character. This is saying that that person never does that. They do no wrong to their neighbor and they cast no slur on others. This is a person whose speech only builds up. Uh, I think about where it says, it says in Ephesians 4, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that, that they may bend, that that it may benefit those who listen. That's this person. Have you ever known somebody who every time they talk, it brings life into the room? It brings energy. It lifts people up. Well, that's this person. This also reminds me of when, when Scott preached a while back on James 3 and about how powerful our tongues are. Like, like a giant ship is steered by a tiny little rudder. Our tongues can steer our whole life. Or like um, maybe a more pertinent metaphor for us today, like a little spark can cause a forest fire. One wrong word uh, can totally destroy a relationship. In the book of James, James talks about this, and then he asks, who can tame the tongue? Well, the psalmist says this person can. The person who gets to be filled with God because they qualify to go in into God's temple, a God-filled life, this person has tamed their tongue. So purity of heart, wholesomeness of speech. Next one is integrity of relationship. Look at verse 4. Who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. 
who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Now we've talked, we've seen, uh, we've talked recently because we have seen recently in various Psalms, I'm thinking of Psalm 11 off the top of my head, where, and when the psalmist talks about how God hates evildoers, and we've talked about how the Hebrew idea of hating, relational hating, is different than the Western idea. Western idea of hate means that you, uh, you, 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 uh, have, a, you, they burn with loathing negative emotions towards somebody. You, it's the opposite of affection. It's dark feelings at somebody. Well, the Hebrew idea of hate is, is, is a passive turning away from. And what this is saying is that the, the, this person despises a vile person. It, it's saying that there is, uh, there is nothing in a vile person that is worth following after, that is worth imitating, that is worth taking in. There's no honor. There's no value. There's no heroism in a vile person. And then it, then it flips the idea. It says that this person honors those who fear the Lord. This is saying uh, that the person who gets to be filled with God, their, their relational values are, are again, pure-hearted. The, the people that they admire and the people that they choose to ignore, those are chosen very carefully, and they reflect strong character and strong desire to do good. And then it says this person keeps an oath even when it hurts. This is a person that values not just their own word, but values relationship to the point that they are ready to sacrifice for other people for the good of others. This is not a person who leverages their relationships for their own gain, and that's their priority. This is a person that is loving for the sake of others. A person who truly has integrity in relationships. Their relationships are intentional, they're carefully chosen, and they're self-sacrificial. So who gets to be filled with God? Someone with purity of heart, wholesomeness of speech, integrity in relationships. And the last one, uh, someone with justice in economy. Justice in economy. Look at verse 5. Who lends money to the poor without interest? Who does not accept a bribe against the innocent? Now, in the Old Testament law, for Jewish people, it was illegal to loan money to another Jew at interest. And this was a way to preserve solidarity within the people of God. This was a person, this was a way that God designed to erase class distinctions within the worshiping community. But it was also illegal in, for in Old Testament law to loan money to a poor person, whoever that person may be, at interest. This is not talking about uh, loaning money to a peer or to uh, an, an investor at interest. It's not talking about that. This is talking about loaning money to a poor person at interest. It says that this person doesn't do that. It says that this person does not accept a bribe against an innocent. Now, I think of bribes as, um, you know, I'm some kind of official, um, and say I'm a, uh, let's just, let's just think of a real basic one. Uh, 
uh, say I'm a police officer and I pull someone over because they're speeding. And then the person says, how much money do I have to give you to not give me a ticket? And I say, oh, $100 and you don't get a ticket. That's accepting a bribe. That's the way I think about a bribe. But actually, bribes go much broader and much deeper than that. Accepting a bribe against the innocent. This would be any kind of profiting off of evil. Any kind of looking the other way, turning away and ignoring evil deeds because somewhere in the looking away, we profit from it and we benefit from it. Now, this is out of the last six Psalms that we have studied. Out of the last six. So we're in Psalm 15. So since Psalm 9, um, five of them have mentioned Something about justice in the economy, uh, God's love for the poor, uh, how God pay attention to the needy and the oppressed, God's love for justice in the world. Now, we tend, there's something in our culture, especially in our tradition, when pastors stand up and they talk about economic justice, there's something inside of us that says, hmm, is he getting political? Hmm, is this some sort of incipient liberalism creeping in? And we should be careful because the Bible is filled with words about justice in economy. We read earlier when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Entrance liturgy. Jesus' answer was, follow the commandments. He says, oh, I've done that. Jesus goes. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Now I've reflected on that story a lot in various times in my life. I've really kind of been disappointed with Jesus. Because I learned somewhere along the line, if anybody comes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is not sell what you have and give it to the poor. The answer is uh, admit that you are a sinner. Believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and forgive you and receive Jesus into your life and receive forgiveness. That's supposed to be the answer, Jesus. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's awkward for us reformed evangelicals. But he doesn't qualify it. That's what he tells the guy. And the guy walks away and Jesus doesn't chase him down. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, It's really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom. So when this psalm says that the person who gets to be filled with God is someone who lends money without interest to the poor and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, this is serious business. Now, now we have a picture of the person who gets to be filled with God, the person who qualifies to enter into God's tent. The pilgrim comes to the door of the temple, ask the, the door person, the concierge, the gatekeeper, the priest, what do I have to do to get in? And the gatekeeper says, are you pure in heart? Are you wholesome in speech? Are you have integrity in your relationships? Do you have justice in your economics? Now, if you were the pilgrim in that moment, Would you get to go in? 
I can tell you, folks, I think I'd be the first in line to turn to, to say, well, that's not me. I don't qualify for this. And you know what? Uh, there's only one person here who qualifies for this. There's only one person in this worship service, in this meeting, who qualifies uh, to go into the tent, who qualifies for the God-filled life. Do you know who it is? Kids, do you know? What's his name? It's Jesus. Jesus is the pilgrim who gets to go into the tent. Think about it. Purity of heart. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. Think about when Peter wrote in First Peter, he committed no sin. He says it plainly. Jesus himself said, I have come to do my father's will. I only do what the father tells me to do. Wholesomeness in speech. Jesus, uh, I think about when Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of life. I think about the disciples learning to call Jesus the word of God. Wholesomeness in speech. Integrity of relationship. How did Jesus choose his relationships? I think about how he uh, vehemently opposed uh, the self-righteous, hypocritical religious elites of his day. And how he intentionally chose to spend time with the sincere um, Sincere, uh, religious, uh, spiritual seekers who were rejected by their society. I, I've come to it over and over again. We talked about it, the story of when uh, Mary of Bethany was sitting at his feet among the other disciples. And her sister, Mar- sister Martha came up and said, you tell Mary to get back here in the kitchen with me. And Jesus says, no way, not a chance. Mary has chosen the better way. Seated here. Think about how Jesus made space for people that culturally were not supposed to be around rabbis. He said, no, these these are my friends. They come to me. Think about how Jesus kept his oath even when it hurt when he went to the cross. Justice and economy. It was Jesus who said it's harder for a rich person to go through an eye of of the needle than to get into the kingdom. It was Jesus who chose intentionally a life of poverty so that he could be free to do what God had called him to do. So that he would be free without hindrance to address the people God had called him to address the poor and the needy. So that he can be in a position to speak to those in power from a place of prophetic edge. This is a picture of Jesus. So what's the big idea here? We have this entrance liturgy, this song about the pilgrim who comes. How do I get in? How do I be filled with God? And then this Davidic psalm, the answer, paints a picture of somebody that in David's time was nobody that David knew. Was only a person that David, through the hope that the Holy Spirit had given him, a person that David could hope for. But we read it and we see, oh, this is a person we know. This is a picture of Jesus. 
the perfect human being, the perfect pilgrim, the man of God, who goes into the God-filled life on our behalf. That's what the big idea is. Now, if you remember last week when we did Psalm 14, Psalm 14 was all about how there's no righteous people. No, not one. And then it ends with, oh, would God send salvation out of Zion. And we talked about how Jesus was the salvation of God that comes from his holy hill. Jesus is God come down to save us. Well, Psalm 15 flips the image. It shows us what a righteous person looks like. And then it says that Jesus is the righteous man who leads us into God's presence. Do you see the difference? The big idea here, folks, that we learned from this psalm and last week. Jesus is, Jesus stands between God and the world. He stands in between heaven and earth as a mediator. We look to Jesus and we see God come down and making himself accessible to us. God the Father looks at Jesus and he sees a human being who has ascended into heaven, who has come into his presence. Jesus stands in between heaven and earth. Do you see it? So what does this mean for us in the way that we live? Well, if Jesus is the only person who qualifies for a God-filled life, and if our only hope, well, then our only hope at having a God-filled life ourselves is not by trying continually trying to earn it. It's by holding on to Jesus and going in on his coattails. So we started with the image of us standing at the door saying, how do I get in? And the doorkeeper is saying, you got to do these things. The psalm invites us to imagine that image in a new way. We stand at the door and we say, how do we get into the God-filled life? The doorkeeper says, you have to do these things. And then another human who refers to himself as your older brother comes alongside and says, I qualify for those things. And he starts to go in and then he turns around. He looks at the doorkeeper. He looks at you and he says, this one's with me. Then we go in on his merits, on his qualifications. This reminded me of when I went to go visit Chip at work. I'm not supposed to go in that building. I don't work there. I don't live there. But Chip met me at the door. He's qualified to go in. And he gave me a tour of the whole place. And it was awesome. That's how you get into the God-filled life. So we're out of time. But I want to invite you folks to remember that this thing that we're after as a church, this thing that we're after as individuals, the thing that we long for, goodness and justice and God's presence and heaven on earth and joy and peace, we could never earn this. We need to stop trying to earn it. Jesus has earned it. Let's turn our eyes to him. And with him, we walk right in. At that point, now we can learn holiness in a whole new way. Let's pray.